Good morning, everyone. My name is Judith Sachs, and I'm the Chief Academic Officer of Studiosity. Uh, I wish to acknowledge that I'm hosting and recording this symposium from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. I also acknowledge the custodians of the various lands on which you all work today and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this symposium today. I acknowledge that we have members from Pacifica and Maori peoples and Canadian First, Pe First Nations people. We acknowledge your elders past and present. We're here today to predict and imagine the challenges and successes to come, but also to reflect on how we've, how we've got here in terms of um, academic integrity. It's certainly been quite a, a change, quite an elevation and escalation, both in terms of the interventions, but also in terms of the instances. We also, at the end of today's sim uh, symposium, recognise the work of Tracy Braytag and her landwork landmark work and passion for the field of integrity. So this is a topic of great interest for everyone today. And later, into, later uh, at the end of the session, we will um, recognize the Tracy Braytag Award uh, for Academic Integrity. And I will invite Jack to um, present that award uh, and announce that award. So um, the session is organized around um, the introduction I will then ask each member of the panel questions that relate to their expertise and experience. And I ask them to indicate that, that uh, relatively briefly. And then uh, there've been questions that have been asked from the audience. And I thank the people that have uh, sent in the questions and they really are very useful and very insightful. And at the end, after Jack has presented the Tracy Braytark Award, I will attempt to um, bring it all together. So that will be the greatest challenge as well as trying to uh, manage the questions as they come in. So could I invite um, uh, our panel to introduce themselves and let's start with Guy and it's only because Guy is in front of me uh, in terms of <laughs> the tiles. There's no sort of sexist or, or gendered uh, <laughs> uh, message behind that. So Guy, can you just introduce yourself, please? Sure, thanks, Judith. So uh, I'm Guy Curtis. I'm a senior lecturer in applied psychology at the School of uh, Psychological Science at the University of Western Australia. Uh, I have um, been researching academic integrity going back to uh, 2004. So now getting into a bit over 15 years that I've been doing academic integrity research. Um, and certainly it's become the increasing focus of my research in the last five years. So I've been doing an awful lot of it. Uh, and um, then knowing what I find from research on academic integrity, I've got into um, advocacy of, of what we can do with those research findings to um, improve academic integrity in the higher education sector. Thank you. So Christine, you're the second tile. So um, we're, we're not going in geographical location, we're going from one side of the country to the other. So Christine. Thanks Judith and welcome everyone. So I'm Associate Professor Christine Slade. I'm the academic lead in, of assessment in the Institute of Teaching and Learning Innovation at the University of Queensland. And in that role, I have leadership responsibilities in the university's academic integrity action plan. And that's probably been going now for about three years, given a bit of interruption with COVID. I'm also leading a Herds of Funded grant with Guy and Shiona Thompson from QUT, looking at the motivation of why students use buy-sell um, trade file sharing sites. And we hope to be able to help um, institutions make uh, use that as an evidence base to inform some decision-making. And of course, I was uh, with Tracy, um, probably not as much as uh, Rowena has been in the past years, but I did do a couple of things with her uh, where I was on the team of TEXA-funded um, uh, experts doing the national workshops around Australia and also doing the online um, toolkit. And then before that, I was also part of the collaborative in Epigeum to develop the uh, educative modules for students and staff. Let's fly back to the West and Rowena. <laughs> Thanks, Judith. And uh, I'm really pleased to be here with Guy and, and Christine as well. Um, my name's Rowena Harper. I'm the director of the Centre for Learning and Teaching at Edith Cowan University in Western Australia. And uh, part of my role in that centre is to oversee our university's approach to academic integrity. 
Uh, I've worked in the area of academic integrity uh, for well over 10 years. Uh, I've developed student academic integrity modules uh, in my roles in academic language and learning. Uh, I've provided staff development in the areas of prevention, detection, education, management. Uh, and I've also informed policy and procedure at the various institutions I've worked at. And I also research actively in the area and have done for quite a few years. And a lot of that was done uh, in collaboration with and alongside uh, Tracy Bretag, who we're honouring this morning, who I very much miss as a colleague and friend. So um, I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks very much. So let's, let's get down to the business of uh, this morning's symposium. And the first question, I think I'll direct it to, to Guy, and, and it is about legislation because a number of people were interested in, in the legislation and it's something that's happened since uh, our last symposium. So the landmark Australian legislation was designed to empower universities to better protect their students, develop academic integrity, protect and maintain the perceived global value of Australian education. What have we seen? And would you, how would you rate its success? or effectiveness? Sure. So um, the, the TEXA amendment um, prohibiting academic cheating services, which is um, what um, more of us are in the area would colloquially call contract cheating um, sites or contract cheating providers, uh, has um, had an impact already. We, uh, we saw almost immediately from that uh, law being implemented that some of the sites that were providing assignments to students for payment um, self-geo-blocked uh, from Australia because they knew that um, they would be in breach of Australian law. Um, others uh, seem to have got that message as well um, over time, which is good. Uh, at the same time, uh, TEXA recently released to universities a list of over 2,300 uh, websites that they know are still in the business of selling assignments to um, Australian university students, uh, oh, sorry, to university students per se, with about nearly 600 of those directly targeting Australian students. Uh, Texa have taken one court action uh, to block uh, a, um, a provider and, and prosecute um, the provider under that law, uh, which I, I think and hope will, will send a bit of a message. Uh, I think the impact has been um, not so much on stopping these sites yet getting to Australia, but in raising awareness uh, that they are illegitimate services. Uh, and that, that's been quite helpful both to, uh, to staff and uh, students to, to kind of get an idea of what is in fact um, something that's providing them genuine educational support versus something uh, that is, is genuinely providing cheating. Rowena, Christine, do you want to make any comments further to uh, what, what has been said? I was just going to add, I guess, from a university's point of view, that it's given us a place, a location to actually be able to um, report uh, different, not only sites, but different practices. So I think whether that actually, you know, comes to anything, but I guess that understand we have a place to be able to say to somebody with authority, this is what is happening in our um, university. And so I guess cumulatively, when every, you know, other universities do the same things, we are building up a better picture of, you know, like, for example, the number of sites, um, but also the types of things and the new things that are actually happening. Yeah, and I, I think the, the strength of having legislation for, for me is that um, prior to the legislation being in place, all the implications for engaging in contract cheating fell on the students themselves and there were no implications for the providers. And so I think the, the real strength is that, you know, sending the signal to the industry that, that this is illegal activity. Um, the the knock-on effects in terms of deterring, I think, remain to be seen, um, but, but that for me is a key strength. There's a question that's come up from um, somebody from Universities Australia. And I guess one of the things about um, the legislation, it does allow for the uh, revocation of degrees. Are you aware of any instances where that's happened? And what do you think the impact of that will be on universities? And anybody can answer that. <laughs> I, um, good one, isn't it? <laughs> it it's an it's a incredibly good question. I read that in the submitted questions and I thought about that one for a long time. 
Um, uh, I think um, when when Texa recently shared with universities, um, uh, you know, the, the lists of students that they suspected may have outsourced um, to, to contract cheating providers, um, I know that a range of universities had uh, had names shared with them of students who'd graduated. And so the, the message we got very clearly from Texa was that um, that was an important moment for universities to consider their policies and procedures around the revocation of degrees, because I think many institutions just hadn't put themselves in a policy position to be able to act confidently around those issues. So I think we probably would have seen in the last couple of years, a real strengthening of policy and procedure in that area. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of any actions taken so far, but certainly um, I would anticipate that universities were responding to that data from Texa in just that way, reviewing their own policy and procedure around degree revocation. And I guess that's a, that's, that's a role for the academic boards to be really the, the, the eyes and the ears, but also the, the upholders of academic integrity and they make the recommendations, I imagine, to uh, revoke um, degrees and things. Yeah, and, and that's been um, my experience at UWA as well, that uh, that um, information from Texa about students who may have engaged in contract cheating certainly raised uh, the issue around what is our policy of revoking degrees and is it fit for purpose in a situation where students are identified after graduation as um, having potentially cheated during their studies. Uh, so it's, it's raised that awareness there and I know the conversations have been very deep and serious at um, some institutions where they've had quite a lot of cases that were identified uh, in uh, that uh, set of uh, data that came out of, um, out of Texas. Yeah, so I think that, um, like Guy, I believe some would have serious conversations. And I remember Tracy saying when we were on the Texas project, you know, to the participants that uh, you've got to make, take care of your policy. You've got to make sure you have really good policies. But, you know, and there were several other things around, you know, the characteristics of that. But I guess the challenge for universities is being able to capture everything in that policy. So uh, not making it too specific. So do you have to have a section particularly around that or can you capture that in another part? You know, so as we progress through challenges with academic integrity, we're going to have to have policy around them all. So I guess that's a place where people can share. And I think there was another question around that, the collaboration and sharing of policies or, or how we've done certain things, that communication is really important because we're constantly in this, you know, the next thing's happening and are we prepared? And people who work in the policy space will know that it takes quite a long time to actually change something there. So an interesting conversation, I think, to continue having perhaps through the uh, Academic Integrity Network um, in Australia, that how could we actually tackle this? I, I think also I know that it raised a number of questions for me about how we would substantiate cases of contract cheating for students who'd graduated, because when we reviewed, you know, our standard approaches for investigating and particularly for interviewing a student, um, a lot of the interviewing questions relate to kind of testing the student's knowledge of a subject and if they're two or three years out from from university and haven't been working in the field we can't expect them to have retained the level of detailed knowledge that we would if they were still immersed in a subject so so i think it also raises questions about how we substantiate cases and needing to really strengthen that approach uh, and think about how we would do that if we were you know investigating the case of a student who graduated and rowena do you think there that um the universities have the power to actually do not to revoke, but to actually take a case on like that? I mean, have you had advice around, we still have that authority for the student? Or, you know, I'm thinking of precedent cases perhaps that are going to come up where a student would challenge that if the university went ahead. I think it's probably more a question for university legal departments. I, I think <laughs> I would hope with my, with my teaching and learning hat on and, with my, you know, with an academic governance hat on, I would certainly hope so. If we discovered that we'd awarded a degree on the basis of fraudulent assessment, I would certainly hope that we had the power to revoke that if new information came to light. 
We've been talking about um, academic integrity as it relates to teaching and learning, but there's also the area around research. Um, and how do you think that that, how, how can universities maintain the research integrity at the same level of um, rigor uh, and, and appropriateness as we're doing in, um, in, in teaching and learning? Okay. okay. Um, I, I put my hand up simply because uh, this was a conversation we were having exactly yesterday in our academic integrity working group um, at UWA, uh, which um, I'm part of. We were talking about um, the distinction between um, academic integrity and research integrity, which is sort of one question. We've got uh, things that overlap both. For example, in a research publication, someone might plagiarise and an undergraduate student assignment, someone might plagiarise, but we don't have researchers um, bringing handwritten notes into an exam because that's not what researchers are doing, but it is something students are doing. So there's, there's some overlap, but there's also um, some difference. Uh, research integrity um, has a number of oversight mechanisms outside of um, the, the academic integrity things that are done. So universities are required um, to have uh, res it? research integrity advisors um, as, un under the national policy on uh, research, research integrity, things that are covered by ARC and NHMRC. Uh, we have ethics committees for things that involve, say, um, human or animal research uh, that, um, again, sit outside the area of um, academic integrity. Uh, at uh, my institution, UWA, we have a compulsory uh, research integrity module for uh, new PhD students. Some of that includes some issues around academic integrity, such as um, plagiarism and that sort of thing, um, but also covers uh, other aspects of um, research integrity. And, and so that's a, an educative and, and training based uh, approach, which uh, Tracy Bretek was a really big advocate for. Of, um, we want to educate uh, in this space. And uh, certainly that, that's you know, something that can be done um, anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, if I can speak for ACU, I know our academic integrity and our research integrity teams have done a lot of work to, to place side by side the different sets of policies and procedures that relate to academic integrity and research integrity and have, have really tried to identify the touch points where, where one set of procedures might need to actually share and come into contact with the other. And so, um, you know, I think, I think that work really needs to be done in, in every university um, based on my experience is that getting those, because typically it is two separate teams that deal with academic and research integrity, but really a partnership between those two areas to make sure we're really adhering to everything we need to under the code in terms of research integrity um, and also upholding academic integrity in the HDR space. I think that that partnership is vital. Yeah, I think that, oh, sorry, Judith. No, no, was, please, please. I was just going to say, I think that's the area that's a little bit grey is the, um, the higher, you know, HDR students, because in research integrity, we've already, you know, got our codes of conduct for staff. At UQ now we've got a code of conduct for students as well, but that interaction between the people working on academic integrity and research integrity for those students, I think that is like Rowena says, that's a really important area for us to further, because I know that research students have so much more integrity issues that they have to deal with, but they also have these other ones and there's, you know, nothing to say that one of them, I guess we're relying in some ways, the answer is oh, well, they're under supervision, so therefore it's probably touch points where we know that they're not cheating, but I think we can't just leave it at that. In uh, a number of the, the, the delicate questions, um, contract treating, cheating was really a, a major concern. And there are now what they describe uh, in the literature as pay-to-password websites. As, as I speak, there are probably new ones being uh, put out. <laughs> um, what's the impact on student behaviour and learning outcomes where large numbers can uh, assess these uh, pay-to-pass websites and anybody can uh, answer it, that question. I'll just say, um, can I throw to Christine because she's leading <laughs> the research on buy, sell and trade websites. Well, we can also go back to our other research that's, you know, the high percentage 11 points, something four or seven that we found um, 
in the um, incentive, you know, instead of self-reporting the incentivized um, survey, we're using these file sharing, you know, peer, whatever we want to call them. Uh, I guess uh, on a practical basis, we definitely know students are using them and we have got implications at universities about it. Uh, and I guess that's one lever that the, the legislation has helped, for example, in the STEM people struggling with some of their sites that give students answers, they've been able to report those. So it gives them a little bit of leeway, but we had to wrestle with what parts of using those sites is okay, you know, study help, and what parts might be misconduct. And it's much harder than just buying an assignment in the sense from a contract cheating site, you know, on, online. So we've developed uh, a sort of a statement on what we consider the students need to be careful about. And it's mainly to do with the uploading and downloading. And we've actually then publicised that across the institution. Whether students still really understand that, I'm not sure, but we're trying our best to at least have our statement where we know, be careful students. It's, it's this duty of care, you know, be, be careful when you use these sites because you can fall yourself into misconduct or you could, you know, blatantly takes and stuff, uh, but it may not be the most up to date, you know, so we've had a lot of implications, I guess, on student behaviour. Uh, we've had cases, you know, involving it, obviously. Um, so the educative approach and then how you actually uh, investigate those too, it, it's a big area. It's a, a, a newer area, I guess, for us to actually be tackling. And in terms of your research then, um... Are you focusing on undergraduate and postgraduate students? And are there differences between those two student populations? Well, we're actually doing two things. So Guy could talk to the survey we've done already of students, um, a mix of students, but we're also, Shiona from QUT is responsible for uh, looking at social media sites and sites where students put up their opinions and we're going to do a thematic analysis of, of those sites and try and understand from the student's point of view the motivation why they're actually using them. Guy, do you want to say something about the survey? Sure. So the survey we've run had um, around about 400 students and they were principally undergraduate. So I don't think we had a big enough group of postgraduate to make a distinction in um, what their behaviours were. What we were seeing among the undergraduate was um, they were um, typically trying to find um, exam questions, exam answers, test questions, test answers, um, whereas they were uploading things like uh, their, their lecture notes. So um, this was... Um, there was a distinction in what was being uploaded versus what was being downloaded. They were sharing materials that they had in order to get the <laughs> materials that they wanted. Yeah. Uh, and with things like tests uh, and exam answers, what's worrying there is that they're, they're looking at things that they can um, directly use uh, to um, answer um, assessment questions, not through their own um, study of uh, the material and understanding it, but um, simply finding an answer to a question, which, uh, which is a bit of a concern, of course. Look, there's an interesting question that was sent in from the delegates, and I'd just like to throw it to the panel. And the question is, am I naive to hope for positive academic integrity, that is trusting most students to do the right thing? I liked that question too when, when I read it. Um, no, I, I, I think you're not naive because I think all the data shows that a majority of students do do the right thing. I think that's what we need to keep our eye on when all the large scale studies show that the students who engage in contract cheating are still very much in the minority. Um, I, I think though, um, I was just reflecting on that previous question too. I think there's a huge gray area here um, where a lot of what I observe, for example, might be in a, in a particular cohort, one or two students might post a question on a website like Chegg to try and get an answer from a paid tutor. And then the students share that answer with 30 or 40 other students in the cohort. So there's a large number of students who are using that answer, but only one or two got it directly from the website. And so I think there's a huge gray area there where some students clearly did deliberately contract out an answer to a question, but others got an answer from a friend. And um, I think, you know, that there's an ongoing debate as to whether we should treat those two behaviours um, similarly, um, given that with my learning and teaching hat on, 
None of the students have done the work. All the students have outsourced the answer from somewhere else. Just because a student paid for it, does that mean their behaviour was worse? So I think, um, I think uh, you know, no, no, you're not naive. Um, I think to think that a majority of students are doing the right thing. But I do think that what the right thing is, is not necessarily a shared view among students and staff. A lot of students feel that those sharing of answers, the collaborating, what we might call colluding, um, that working together, a lot of students think that's fine. And I, I think that's a huge area that, that we haven't really tackled um, as well as we might have. So what, what do you think we need to do? Because students might see it as a semantic difference, but in fact, it's, it's a fundamental difference. It's, it's around values and it's around the whole purpose of, of, of assessment and learning. So where, where do you think we should start to um, clarify the language, but also really put a strong boundary around the expectations? That, that's a really, really difficult <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, um, I think uh, I, I think we probably need to do more within our learning and teaching environment to scaffold how students need to be working. So we, we tend to focus on the products that students need to produce and less on the process we want students to use to get to that product. So I think probably in every discipline, we need to do more scaffolding around um, the ways that, that knowledge and learning get created in that discipline. Um, I, I think that's the first point. Yeah. I, I was going to say that I first became aware of this educator's heart, I guess I call it, when we, Susan Rowland and I did those two national workshops around assessment design to try and help uh, academic integrity. And one of the answers, that one of the biggest concerns when we asked the two groups was they was very disturbed that their students weren't learning because they were cheating. And, you know, I think for educators, that's an okay thing. And, and then the other piece of work around the vulnerability of students. So we have the hardened cheaters, but we still do have those vulnerable students that will listen, you know, get sucked in or believe the messages, which are lies from the sites online. So we have a big group of those. And I guess the third thing about that is Guy's research around, you can talk to this guy, but around why students don't cheat. I think that's very helpful to understand. Okay, well, that, that gives me a nice segue into this, um, this <laughs> conversation. We're working the, together. <laughs> the, the, um, I'll, I'll get to the why students don't cheat thing in a sec, but I want to get back to that, that question of, you know, are we naive to um, think that uh, our students aren't cheating? Um, I've got to say, having been involved in lots of conversations in, and lots, lots of, you know, looking at what people are talking about on blogs and Twitter and various other things like that, there actually seems to be quite a bit of Pollyanna-ish thinking in North America that everything's okay because I'm a good teacher and my students possibly would never cheat um, as a consequence of the fact that I'm a good teacher and why would they do that to me? Uh, but that um, is is too naive if people are at that point because uh, we know any assessment is cheatable. Um, it's harder to cheat on some assessments than others for sure, um, but any assessment is cheatable. So if uh, students want to find a way around um, doing it the right way, they can. Um, but at the same time, there are many students who will do the right thing for the right reasons. So also when we talk about academic integrity, um, there's different forms of academic integrity breaches. There's things like minor plagiarism, not you know, putting a reference on something that's paraphrased or not putting quotation marks on something that's um, being quoted. And some of that comes down to, for example, knowledge of referencing rules. And when uh, we look at, again, some of the research I've done in this, students tend to do the things that they don't understand are wrong. So uh, they will not um, put a reference on something that's paraphrased if they don't realise that they have to, um, or they might uh, resubmit um, an assignment or part of an assignment in another unit if they don't understand that um, recycling of assignments or self-plagiarism are, are prohibited at their institution. Um, the things they, they understand least, they do most. The things they understand most, they, they do least. And they do understand, for example, that getting someone else to write an assignment for them is wrong. So while contract cheating is a serious problem when it occurs, it occurs at a lower rate than um, minor plagiarism. 
Um, so I think we always have to be aware of that. And then again, with that, that trusting of students, I, I have some data as yet unpublished from a, a survey looking at um, some of the kinds of uh, assessments that were um, commonly implemented early on during the coronavirus pandemic, like um, unsupervised online tests. Now, something like, this is a self-report, so some students are probably not telling the, the truth um, and, and covering up what they do, but almost 80% were saying, yes, they do Google answers if they're in an unsupervised online test when they, they know they shouldn't. And um, nearly three quarters were saying, yes, they collaborate with others in an unsupervised online test when they're supposed to be doing it by themselves. So uh, look, if you make it so easy uh, that people can do the wrong thing and um, you know, quite often uh, they will, will take that opportunity. But at the same time, going on to the why students don't cheat. Strongest reasons why students don't cheat is that they believe it's it's immoral and unethical. Um, and that accounted for the majority of, of students, so a majority of non-cheaters. For students that might have had, had a tendency or predisposition to cheat, they were more put off by the, the possibility of detection and punishment. So um, we have to have our enforcement mechanisms in place um, to, to catch cheating and to, um, to provide serious consequences for cheating when we find it. Uh, but there's a lot of students around whose goal at university is to learn. Um, and uh, because they're, they're there to learn, uh, they're, they're there to try and do the right thing as they go. There was a question um, before the uh, symposium by um, a colleague from uh, Massey University, and it's about the diversity of populations within universities and how do you how do you actually uh, recognise and respond to um, the different experiences that you know our international students have, and and help them to understand the logic behind uh, what what we expect of them, but also incorporate that into their study habits and in terms of their writing habits. So how do you manage diverse populations within, within the university as it relates to academic integrity? Is my reframing of putting the number of these <laughs> issues together. It's, um, if I could talk to that one first, I, it's a great question. And I think it's an area that we're really only just starting to peel back the layers mm. of and understand. Um, for quite a while, the data has been suggesting that students who speak a language other than English are more likely to engage in paid contract cheating. Um, and often that gets conflated with international students. And, and that might be a factor, students who are, who are new to Australia and new to a higher education environment that we have in Australia. Um, but the data often points to language difference as a, as a key factor. Um, in uh, the large study that I um, co-led with Tracy Bratag a number of years ago, uh, we gathered uh, uh, qualitative data as part of that study and that our analysis of that that I've done um, in collaboration with Felicity Prentice, that's currently under review with, with studies in higher education. And what that data uh, shows is that uh, one of the reasons that um, international students or students who speak a language other than English may be uh, more likely to engage in paid contract cheating is because they're very actively and systematically excluded from the learning cultures that domestic students build among themselves. It was very troubling data that we could see in the narratives of domestic students domestic students saying they cheat, those international students, they're cheaters, but we work really hard. Um, but yet the domestic students describe themselves engaging in behaviours that are clear, systematic, organised cheating behaviours, where they share work at a scale that I think we've previously not seen. Um, so I think we we really, really need to think carefully uh, and work much harder, I think, in the learning and teaching environment to integrate, to work on that social and academic integration of international students into the learning cultures in Australia. I think we don't work hard enough to foster and forge relationships between domestic and international students. We leave it to chance, I think, in most universities. And I think that is having a direct impact on the patterns we're seeing in contract cheating behaviour. So is that about rebuilding a sense of belonging, building a sense of uh, a, a community where uh, everybody is accountable and everybody is responsible and moving away from punitive and protective? And, and you, the work you and, and, and Tracy did a number of years ago was certainly around that. Given that we've known that for a while, 
what's getting in the way of that, you know, being integrated more into practice? Uh, I think um, probably all teachers, tutors and lecturers, I think need to develop a skill set in creating an inclusive curriculum and an inclusive classroom. I think um, a lot of teachers just don't necessarily have a skill set that in in forging relationships between their students that teachers tend to have a content focus uh, rather than a relational focus among students in their class and so I think we just need to give people that toolkit to build inclusive classrooms I think that go a long way to addressing what, what we've seen in our data. I think that's that's really helpful Rowena I've just learned something there about I hope you get that published soon because that was one of the recommendations in our action plan was to actually support these students and, and, and both culturally and you know linguistically and i think part of the reason that that and i'm speaking generally now not just about our institution but when we talked about this i think people feel that we're stigmatizing international students or, or pulling out them as the most cheating group or something so we have this social barrier uh, to say, oh, you shouldn't be saying that because, you know, there's others that do. And we know there are others that cheat. But to be able to turn that conversation around, like you're saying there, and say we need to make them more inclusive, there is social implications that people feel about that. But I agree with you. It's um, we need to actually sort of widen it from what we've been doing around language and 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 we and aware of the cultures but being able to tackle that and understand what to do about it i think again is another collaborative conversation that would be very useful based on that research you're doing to find out you know just ways that we can actually do that because it's hard to break down existing um, relationships with groups especially when now they're not on campus as much um, and, and, you know, and we've always known about the shyness of some international students in a tutorial and things like that. So there's, there's a lot of things to break down to create that inclusiveness. So at the end of the day, it seems to me that there are some structural things that have to happen in universities. There are some cultural elements that have to happen within the universities. There are some political elements in terms of um, the politics of resourcing, the politics of uh, who's, who has the, the loudest voice and who has responsibility. Where do you start? I mean, we've, we've got legislation now, we've, we've, got, we've got an improvement, but there's still the problem of academic integrity. There's, you know, these, these contracts, they not only work with students, you know, these people are very pernicious in terms of they, they inveigle themselves into institutions through devi devious means like access to emails, course materials and course content. How do we, is there, um, are there a number of interventions where we could actually um, have a, a pivotal point where we, we, we go in, in the right direction rather than go into the direction of darkness? Uh, that was a bit, a bit <laughs> rambly, but I think, I think, you know, it's, it's a big question, it's a big issue. It's not being stopped. There are commercial companies that are finding ways to, you know, to make profit out of out of students' anxiety about getting their degrees. So where where's the starting point from now on, post COVID and post this sort of um, pandemic online learning and intensification? Are we post COVID though? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's. I mean, that is a that's a, a question because some of the changes that happened to higher education as a consequence of COVID, so more things shifting online, maybe less engagement on campus um, are persisting. And if they're any part of um, a problem of uh, contract cheating or of um, students engaging uh, with um, unethical non-university uh, providers of um, higher education uh, information support services assessment uh, and so on that that um, is a, a problem uh, and so um, we probably need to think not yeah not necessarily entirely post-covid yet or even if we are post-covid are we ever going to be back to how things were in the past with mostly on um, on campus engagement of students and that, that sorry to to go off tangentially just for a second 
Um, I recently came across an artificial intelligence writing tool that can produce um, pretty good content and students can pay a $40 a month subscription and they can get uh, large um, amounts of text written um, with a few presses of a button in the space of a few seconds that could pass for um, work submitted as assessments. Now, a great solution to the problem of an artificial intelligence system doing writing for you would be to have writing in class with um, incremental uh, feedback and um, going through drafts and, and things like that. But um, the question is, do we get students into classrooms? Can we get students into classrooms? Will they turn up when their lecture materials are online? Uh, you know, how if they're getting sick, um, how do we support them coming back and doing those assessments at another time. There's there's sort of so much there to um, potentially un unpack. Um, but just to go back to, to your, the broader point of are there a number of interventions and where do we start? Uh, I think the point is there has to be a number of interventions because we can't just do one thing um, to try to stop the problem of contract cheating. We need to attack it at uh, multiple levels, educational, enforcement, um, at things like what the law does attacking the supply of it. Anyway, I'll throw over to my other learned panelists. Yeah, I, I agree, Guy. I think, um, you know, those of us who've worked in the field for a while, we often think in terms of sort of the four prongs of the approach, the prevention, education, detection and management. So I think you really have to think holistically across all those areas. I think if there was a place to start, so, some of the discourse at the moment among people who've been working and researching in the space for a while is that Universities do need to turn their attention for some for, for a while to the issue of detection, because we are not detecting anywhere near at the rate we need to be to get a full picture of what's happening inside our institutions. Um, I think uh, some great work that, that's been happening at uh, UNSW, for example, I, I think has been leading the, the call for this, and I, and I, I, I agree. Um, I, I think that through detection, uh, you have more conversations with students about the kinds of behaviours they're engaging in and why. Uh, and, and then you, uh, because, because contract cheating is, although it's a global problem, it's also a very contextual problem. It manifests differently in different countries, in different contexts, in different disciplines. And so I think through more powerful detection, you learn more about how it's manifesting in your own institution and across different disciplines, and then you can really start to, to tackle it as you're seeing it. I think towards detection, universities need to get much more sophisticated in terms of how they're leveraging their data. Uh, we, we tend to um, leave it up to individual investigators to dig through things like LMS login data um, and those kinds of things. Whereas I, I think really we need to be compiling that data at the institutional level, have dashboards available for, for staff to refer to when they're doing investigations to make that process of detection and management much more efficient and much more supported in terms of data. So that's, that's where I think you know, we need to start. What I'm also, um, in terms of the, the work that I've read of um, Elaine Eaton and her, colleague, her colleagues at Calgary, um, she, she talks about modifications in assessment design. Do you think that we actually have to start with that, rethinking the role and purpose of assessment? And, and you, you, you brought it up um, a little bit, Guy, in terms of writing in class. Would that be the place to start about rethinking assessment and having really clarity around what the purpose of assessment is, what you expect them to achieve and what, what you expect students to be able to deliver? Yeah, um, assessment, uh, when we're talking about academic integrity, we, we're almost always talking about academic integrity and um, academic misconduct in the, the context of assessment. Uh, we, we don't think that students are cheating when they're reading a book um, or when they're not reading a book um, or they're watching a, um, a documentary uh, instead of reading a book or something like that. Um, so, so it really is around assessment. Assessment um, design is important to uh, helping um, 
provide students opportunities to uh, do their own work um, and uh, make there's things that we can um, do in, in assessment in many spaces. So we've got we've got potentially some competing issues there. One is assessment security, which is about where the extent to which an assignment or assessment is cheatable, um, and then the other is academic integrity, which is the extent to which students you know, want to do the right thing uh, within uh, the assignment. Um, Sarah Eaton, who, who you mentioned, uh, she and I are co-editors of a, an upcoming book on um, contract cheating, and one of the chapters provided in that book by uh, Wendy Sutherland-Smith and Phil Dawson makes the argument that um, we could look at uh, a, a theory of motivation, self-determination theory, um, as something that we could consider in assessment design. It says that um, people are more internally motivated by, by things over which they have some control, feelings of autonomy, feelings of mastery. If we build those into um, the design of assessments by, for example, doing things like giving students the choice of what they want to um, study or focus an assessment on, at least um, to some extent, that can be motivating for students to want to do the work themselves. Uh, so there's important considerations like that in assessment design, but I'll, I'll throw to the others who um, also I'm sure will have uh, some very good ideas. I've been working in this space for a long time now, actually it's nearly seven years. And I can remember when it first was, you know, the challenge which we, we actually published um, on that as to what were some of the initial things people were talking about that you could do to sort of strengthen, I guess, academic integrity in assessment design. Now, since then, we've come a long way with Phil Dawson's helpful division of what you were saying, assessment security, which is very useful, I think, to use as a tool with academics and staff to help them understand. Uh, we continue to do professional development workshops regularly uh, around assessment design, because I think not only does it help uh, academic integrity, but it helps the design anyway. I, I guess what I would like to see after this amount of time is the integration of academic integrity as a principle of assessment, like in the suite. And I know we've had to concentrate on it for a long time, but it really should now become one that's just permanently there, you know, like validity, reliability, transparency, all the others, because it's something that's going to stay, stay with us. Um, I think in all the questions that we basically had. If, so I guess I'm the one who, you know, we have all this fantastic research, but you have to translate that into practice. And it's very difficult. And I guess the approach that I've suggested to our university, which we've been running with all this time, is eight-pronged approach. So you have to start right from policy and go right to, you know, through support systems, assessment design, technology, which, you know, is a bit slower perhaps, but if you don't have all these areas running together and the communication between all the different parts of the university, because academic integrity goes right across everything and it's hard to know what each other's doing. If we don't work as a unit and, and, and talk to each other and have that all flowing together, I think our chances of addressing a lot of things are quite poor. We'll address one bit here and then we'll find something else happening. And so I guess the research is so important because it helps understand what's an evidence-based way to go. But we also have a lot of people in the sector who are trying to manage in their universities to actually deal with all of these sort of things. So it's really good to see we're marrying up the two. It's good to see in the applications that I've seen for the award that we have more team um, or more than I, you know, team groups that are actually getting together and collaborating on that. So I think assessment design is one part. If I can build on what the other two have said, I think um, there's some really interesting research coming out of Cradle, um, a deacon around assessment design. And one of the mm -hmm. things that they're suggesting is that universities think more about programmatic assessment. So that is programmatic assessment involves a much, much more widespread use of formative iterative feedback for students and then using only summative high stakes tasks, tasks at key points in a degree. Uh, I think that's a really interesting thing to consider, but there are so many pragmatic barriers inside universities that stop that from happening. So, um, you know, the, the argument is that we, we authenticate learning at the degree level. We give out degrees, we don't give out units. Um, however, you know, if, if, if a student has been cheating all the way through a course and we only pick them up once a year, 
then that forces the student to go back and redo an entire year rather than a single unit. Students also expect to get credit for units if they want to move to other universities or move to other courses. So there's a lot of these very practical um, kind of barriers around that that we'd need to unpick if we were going to think about moving to more authentic, uh, to more to more programmatic assessment. Look, and this is the final question before I invite Jack to um, talk to to us about the uh, the award. Um, Felicity Prentice asked, um, if there are suspicions of misconduct, what factors influence staff members' decisions to follow through with formal reporting? Well, um, that, that's something that Tracy Bretag looked at in our study when we surveyed staff uh, at eight Australian universities. Uh, there are a few. The, the key one that staff said a few years ago when we conducted the survey in 2016 staff said one of the reasons they tend not to report suspected contract cheating is they think it's impossible to prove so they think there's no point reporting because it, the case won't stand up anyway um, another reason staff said they won't tend to report is that um, they felt like their upline manager just wouldn't support them in doing so so that it would get knocked back by somebody saying we don't have enough time we don't have enough resources or we need to retain these students so let's just turn a blind eye those, those sorts of things um, so yeah the, those were really two key reasons why staff said they tend not to and, and it was a quite a significant proportion of staff who said that they had suspected contract cheating at, at least once in their time assessing but um, but didn't end up reporting it so so that is another area that universities need to work on we certainly need to strengthen detection but once those staff at the chalk face are, are detecting we need to make sure they feel supported with really efficient and robust processes for managing breaches uh, that that so that they will actually go on and report everything that they're detecting Yes, so we've actually developed a structure to try and alleviate some of that concern with a, a contract cheating markers guide. So if it's the tutor, it's very, it's a very uh, short guide, but like it's got a lot in it, but we don't want the tutors to spend a lot of time having PD if they're not going to get paid for it, that sort of problem. And then the course coordinator or unit coordinator then verifies if they think there is a problem and then it shifts up to a service role for academic integrity officers and then on because we're trying to share the responsibility to avoid that type of problem that you're saying and it does take a lot of time um, to to um, you know to investigate so I think we have to have these systematic structures and processes and things to also help what you're saying there um, to change the tide of, of, of wanting to investigate. And, no, I'm going to oh, oh, just, oh, just very sorry. briefly. I'm just going to really quickly jump in and say that the work that Camilla DeMeo did on her PhD at Curtin, which was on um, staff perceived barriers to reporting um, academic integrity breaches uh, is really worth a look for people who've got the, the time to look at it. And um, among the, the things that um, the others mentioned, workload, um, that staff believe it take them so much time um, to go forward with any academic uh, misconduct cases. And Camilla's even here, so she thanked you personally. So Jack, um, can I invite you to uh, take us to the probably the most uh, pleasurable part of my work as the um, uh, Chief Academic uh, Officer at Studiosity. And can you just talk to us about the uh, Tracy Braytag Award and finally announce who the winner of the award is? Uh, very, very happily, Judith, and, uh, and thank you to the, the panel. This is obviously a topic of, uh, of enormous importance uh, as witnessed by the fact that we can we could probably continue for another 30 or 40 minutes or longer, and the hundreds and hundreds of people that have, uh, are, are, are viewing this right now. So thank you, everyone. Um, we come to the point where it is my honor to announce this year's winner of the Tracy Bretag Prize for Academic Integrity. Uh, and I'll just say a few words about Tracy. Most of the people participating in this webinar know Tracy. Uh, for, for those who don't, she was a professor at UniSA uh, and a leading investigator in the field of academic integrity. And she led a major uh, Australian study entitled Contract Cheating and Assessment Design, in fact, with Professor Harper uh, here today. And Tracy traveled nationally and globally to speak on the importance of universities taking a really strong stand regarding educating 
their students about academic integrity and enforcing the rules with vigor and strong sanctions. Without Tracy's important contribution, it's unlikely we would be here today exploring the implications of Australia's aggressive new academic integrity legislation. In early September 2020, not long after the Australian Parliament passed its landmark legislation, it occurred to us that Tracy deserved to be remembered for her essential work in this field. So I wrote to her asking for permission to create an annual Academic Integrity Award in, named in her honor. And on the 13th of September of that year, she wrote back with typical humility, expressing her deep gratitude and full support for the idea. Uh, with her blessing, we announced the, the Tracy Breck Tag Academic Integrity Prize. And this is the second year we've awarded it. And this year we had a record number of applications for the prize, 39 applications, in fact, from 20 universities. Uh, they were incredibly high quality, uh, and um, it was a very difficult process that the panel went through in reviewing them. Special mentions to the projects by teams from the University of Waikato in New Zealand, the University of New South Wales, and Flinders University. Now to the, the top three finalists who you may be aware of, as we have announced this, um, the finalists. Uh, the first finalist was from the University of Southern Queensland, Dr. Jasmine Thomas with Rianne Rue, Renee Desmarchelier, Luke Drury, and Daniel Chalker for a project related to the establishment of the Academic Integrity Unit to manage three central pillars of education, prevention, and detection. Second finalist is from Griffith University, Danielle Logan Fleming, Papi Soturiadu, uh, for interactive orals, an authentic, scalable type of assessment designed to promote academic integrity. Uh, interactive orals offers opportunities for genuine, unscripted interaction between a student and an assessor and allows students to demonstrate their knowledge and skills verbally in a setting that's authentic to a workplace or industry scenario. And finally, from Queensland University of Technology and Swinburne University, the UPASS team of Rick Summers, Sam Cunningham, Sarah Dart, Shiona Thompson, Kaslyn Chua, and Edmund Pickering. Their submission involved the development of an innovative tool called UPASS to detect potential misconduct by preventing students from sharing mathematical and programming-based assessments. Uh, UPASS is open source, it's available for free, and has been trialed at five Australian universities. So well done and congratulations to all three finalists. And I know everyone's waiting for this moment. The winner is the UPASS team from QUT. So congratulations to UPASS and QUT. It's a wonderful result. So as project lead, um, I'd like to invite Shiona Thompson um, to say a few uh, words about, um, about your project or any predictions you might have for academic integrity going forward. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Some are sitting here so nervous. Edmund is also in the room, Ted Pickering, um, if you want to bring him on as well. But um, no, it's ex an extreme honour to um, receive this award. We, we got a second tranche of money from ACTICT uh, this year. So we're, um, we've created a website to be able to share the tool, access to the tool more widely. So keep an eye out for that um uh it's we've changed the name from UPASS because that was a kind of confusing acronym i think for the for a general audience um and yeah assignment watch is is what we're called now and um hey there's ted hi ted hey Fiona, this fantastic news yeah so acknowledgements to the team um caslon at swinburne and rick and sam and sarah um, it's it's a great experience to work together. I'm I'm very non-technical. My background is architecture, so it's been great to work with these uh, with my colleagues in in a very different field. Um, yeah, and we're really really thank you so much. Very honoured to receive this. Well, congratulations, Shiona and Ted and the rest of your team. It's a wonderful project that you've done, and you more than deserve the uh, the prize. So well well done. Cheers, Jack. One minute we have. <laughs> I was going to say, do you mind if I give a quick couple of comments as well? Yeah, sure. Please go ahead. Um, so I, I just wanted to say with that, while I've got the opportunity and it's an, a bit of an audience, um, in this project, we did develop a tool that we can use to monitor um, for assignment content that gets uploaded to Chegg and other academic misconduct sites. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of really good discussion about these sorts of websites today and the importance of detection, which for me is really important because detection for me is about awareness. It's awareness for us to understand the state of the problem and to be nimble, but also it gives a mechanism to take educative responses to students. 
Um, and what I wanted to say with that, and probably the most important and exciting thing is that not only is our tool uh, freely available, um, the source code freely available, but we've actually just in the process of releasing it through a fully supported website available to Australian academics. Um, it's the name of the tool we've changed to Assignment Watch and the website's gonna very soon be released and it's gonna be free to Australian universities for one year while we've got some funding money. So watch this space and I will in the coming month or two send out an email to the Australian Academic Integrity Network notifying them of that. Well, that is, that's fantastic news, Ted, and thank you for that update. And we will also circulate some information about that if you provide that to us uh, after the webinar to all the attendees. I'm sure they're gonna wanna follow up with that as well. Cheers, so I might now just, yeah, now that we're just at the end of time, I might just pass this back to Judith to see if she can wrap this up in a bow in 30 seconds or a minute. Thank you, Judith. Um, and look, I'd just like to make a couple of observations is I think we have made some movement in the area of academic integrity. There's still a lot of work to do, but the practice and the conversations and the networks that I've been watching develop uh, through the chat site, I hope that they, they are sustained and maintained because in fact, that's exchange of ideas and that, that creation of a net, expanding the network uh, through these conversations, I think is really important. And the final thing is I'd like to say is that um, last year when we presented the award at uh, the Universities Australia um, uh, conference, we didn't have anybody uh, in, in the audience to, to celebrate the winners. How fantastic that this year we have over 240 people who are celebrating the success of QUT. So QUT, congratulations on, on your award. And thank you for uh, acknowledging um, that a, a tool will be available for free for, for 12 months and hopefully uh, government or your university might pick it up to keep it going. So uh, keep, keep an eye on this site um, and later in the year we'll be having uh, a couple of other symposia. So thank you for your time today and um, go well and uh, don't be naive about uh, academic integrity. It is the foundation of the quality of what we do in universities and it refers both to us as individuals, but also the society in which we live. So enjoy your day. And if you uh, haven't had COVID yet, look forward to having it not. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you, everyone.